for eight, nine months, we were struggling to get a single company to use us. And for a while, it led to a lot of self-doubt and that phase because we were thinking that, okay, maybe we think this is a good idea, but no one's really willing to buy it. And what that taught me was, I think the when you get a rejection, you have to notice at the quality of the rejection. If the rejection is something like, yeah, this is not really important for me, then that's a different type of rejection versus I don't want to be a first customer for it. And we had the the latter type of rejection, which meant that there was actually a need, but the risk level was something that was too high for people to take a bet on to be the extreme early adopters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Trisha Kotari, CEO, co-founder of Unit 21, a company at the forefront of the fight against financial crimes. Founded in 2018, Unit 21 has raised close to $100 million from Google, Iconic Capital, Tiger Global, Core Innovation, and a number of great angel investors. We discuss finding Unit 21's initial design partners and how they eventually landed Coinbase and Intuit as their first and second customers, founder-led sales and common mistakes on building an enterprise sales team, what she has learned about fraud and company building over the years, and what she learned as a young engineer and product manager at Max Levchin's Affirm, how financial fraudsters are creative, coordinated, and quick, and a lot more. All right. Well, Trisha, welcome to FinTech Leaders. How's it going today? Good. Really excited to kick off this week with you. Yeah, absolutely. Monday morning. I appreciate you joining. I suspect this might be your first call of the day or one of the first, but let's jump right into the meat of the conversation, Trisha, because you have an interesting background, been in fintech for a while. And I think what's interesting to me is that you actually started at a firm. And of course, for everyone listening, that is Max Levchin's company, Max Levchin, of course, being one of the co-founders of PayPal. So I suspect you'll learn some interesting lessons at a firm, maybe guide us through a little bit through your career, but specifically about your time at a firm. Yeah, definitely. A firm. It, it was so interesting when I started at a firm, and I would tell people that a firm is a fintech company. I would have to put my hands in the air and make a quotation sign because people did not like fintech was not anywhere close to as ubiquitous a word as it is today. And I think that first generation of fintech companies, the firms, the the squares, the kind bases really paved the way for it to become one of the biggest industries in technology. Yeah, absolutely. And then one thing that is interesting is 
PayPal was a great company and LeftChain pioneered a lot of anti-fraud, you know, processes, if you will, and new innovations. So was anti-fraud something that you were working on at a firm and how was working specifically on this vertical with someone like Max LeftChain? So I joined a firm. It was very small as a company. There were about 10 engineers when I joined and I am an engineer by training and I built a lot of the original infrastructure at a firm, such as the original ledger, a bunch of the risk-related systems. And after a couple of years, I moved over to product management. And my last project was pretty focused on the risk and the identity projects at a firm. Uh, so one of the things, firstly, a firm had really amazing intuition at the time because of Max's knowledge and, and deep expertise in the space. A firm had really great intuition of where a firm needed to invest from a risk perspective. Even when I joined, there was a risk operations team, and and you know th that's not even the case for fintech companies I talked to today. And at the time, there wasn't a precedent of, okay, this is really what you should be doing from a risk operations perspective. So a firm had a really strong foundation of risk and risk operations. In terms of really where I discovered more about the space of anti-fraud that, that we're in was, you know, I, I keep joking that fraud is never something that you wake up in the morning and you think of, oh, I'm going to start an anti-fraud company. But it is something that I got a chance to understand very deeply some of the issues around fraud that uh, through a form. And, and there were a couple of things that I learned. One is that fraudsters are some of the most creative people in this industry and generally in the world. They're really business owners, they're entrepreneurs too. And they had ways to attack the form business model like they have for every other company in a very interesting and creative way, which wasn't always expected. And so there were a lot of new types of fraud that we were facing. And, and that was because our opponents were really creative individuals. The second thing that I learned was that a lot of fraud is very well coordinated. So fraud, you know, typically th there are cases where, you know, somebody, there's one individual who might look at their debit card or credit card statement and say, hey, this was not made by me. But typically a lot of the fraud where, where you lose a lot of money, it, it comes in fraud rings of really coordinated fraudsters. And, and the third thing that I learned was that, that it was a very expensive investment, even for a firm. We had a lot of engineering investment from a really big risk engineering team. And so it was a huge commitment of engineering resources and, and the agility that was needed by the operations team wasn't necessarily always met because you had an in-house engineering team where you needed to get things prioritized on the roadmap. So a lot of the problems that we're solving for at Unit 21 was something that I firsthand saw at a firm, which enabled me to build the intuition of what is needed to be done in this space. So we're going to get back to the fraud rings in a second. But how was that moment, that morning when you woke up saying, you know, I'm solving something internally 
but this has to be done independently and I could do it for every other company, not just a firm. Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, the there's this very famous line like solve for painkiller, not a vitamin, or be a painkiller, not a vitamin. And I think a form really made me realize the pain of the situation. There were a lot of other ideas I was thinking about, but there were life enhancements, not really crucial, crucial things that I needed. And and the, the advice might be different for B2C versus B2B because is, you know, Instagram really a painkiller and unclear. But B2C, I think, has a different lens of of the importance of things versus B2B where you need to get a budget in order to be prioritized for an implementation within the company. And, and to get a budget, it has to be something that is actually critical for the business because everything might be important for the business, but it may not be critical. And so I firsthand saw the criticality of fraud where it influences the company's balance sheet in a very direct and obvious manner. And I saw the pain with, with current approaches as well. So that really enabled me to understand why is this an interesting business problem to solve. But a big component of you know why both my co-founder and I wanted to build this company was the mission really spoke to us. And I think that's something that is a little underrated while while I think a lot of people talk about oh mission and vision the question is when you're building a company you often have to repeat yourself yeah I, I talk about what I do I don't know six to seven times a day I talk about what I do to potential investors to existing investors to potential customers to existing customers to potential employees existing employees and I'm repeating myself six seven times a day at a very minimum and, you know, the maximum in the 20, 30, 40 times a day. And you really have to believe what you are doing is interesting if you're going to repeat yourself 10 times a day for years on an end, like for four, five, seven, 10 years. And when I was thinking of what I wanted to do, the reason I decided to pick this over another idea that I had was the mission of this of doing something that actually touched the lives of normal people and to make the world a safer and more just place really spoke to me. Yeah, and, and here you are five years later, still repeating yourself every day, but clearly still passionate about it. But going back to those initial days, you know, one thing you obviously had to figure out was your initial partners and your your design partners, especially your your first customers, how did you optimize that process? So that was very difficult because we're in the risk space. So we work typically with very risk-averse people. And if we fail, that means that they could be out of a job. If you fail, that means in the compliance case, if you fail, then they might actually be in jail. And it is absolutely like a very, very critical decision that someone needs to make. And uh, the more critical it is, the more difficult it is to really get those first design partners or first customers. So actually for a long time, it was very difficult. We reached out to a lot of companies. We spoke to a lot of companies and they all told us that this is interesting, but talk to me when you have a first customer. And that was very difficult. Ultimately, what we ended up doing was we reached out to an individual at Coinbase 
police, their investigations practices. And they had one component of their investigations that was still being done in Google Sheets. So we said, okay, we'll just take over that component instead of saying everything or nothing. And that enabled us to have a small wedge within Coinbase, but more importantly, it enabled us to get the Coinbase logo. And then once we got Coinbase, then we got Intuit um, because Intuit for their QuickBooks payments and payroll products was looking for a vendor for anti-money laundering. And when we said Coinbase is using us, then they definitely took a bet on us, but they said, okay, we're going to make it happen. And then once Coinbase and Intuit started using us, then it became Intuit's a household name. People know all of its products, TurboTax, QuickBooks. It it really enabled the flywheel to, to kick off. But it took a long time. For eight, nine months, we were struggling to get a single company to use us. And for a while, it led to a lot of self-doubt in that phase because we were thinking that, okay, maybe we think this is a good idea, but no one's really willing to buy it. And what that taught me was, I think the when you get a rejection, you have to notice at the quality of the rejection. If the rejection is something like, yeah, this is not really important for me, then that's a different type of rejection versus I don't want to be a first customer for it. And we had the the latter type of rejection, which meant that there was actually a need, but the risk level was something that was too high for people to take a bet on to be the extreme early adopters. How about lending banks? Did you eventually start working with banking institutions? Yeah, that was a much easier transition because fintech companies, and there are very few exceptions to the case, but in general, need a sponsor bank to, la- to launch. And so that was a much easier conversation because the banks were already quite familiar with us. And since we were being used by by companies that already they knew and were working with, it was a much easier sense of mitigating risk. That, that's so interesting. So by landing fintech customers, you actually got in through the door for their sponsor banks. And then once you were working with those banks, you could go to, I guess, non-sponsor banks and and obviously, at the beginning, you were probably the one leading the sales process. But at some point, you had to build a team, bring someone on board to lead sales. What did you learn about you know, structuring a sales engine and, and also a team? For the first million or so in revenue, it was primarily me. But I had some support from a BDR who's now one of who's an incredible sales individual at the company today. And it's really like, I think that was a really great way for me to train people initially. There's, you know, a lot to be said about building a sales motion. I think there are a few mistakes that people make often. The first is that they try to hire the super experienced VP of sales at a very early stage. And what do you need in the very early stage is someone who is kind of ridiculously optimistic, is going to just make it happen and get you from maybe a couple customers or or in the range of 10 customers or so to the next level. And then once you have that, then you can hire more experienced salespeople and build out a sales function. That is something that I think very strongly that people often mess up very quickly because if you're a founder and, and you came in from a technical background or 
even if you came in from a non-technical background, but you never really worked in the side of sales, it's really important that if someone was successful at a company like Segment or a company like Looker, like, you know, these are really amazing names. They may be the right person for you, but the question that you have to ask is, when were they at Looker and Segment? Were they at Looker and Segment in 2022 when things are much more built out and, and they, they need to have all of these different functions to operate or were they at Looker and Segment when those companies were still very early and, and then you could, like, they, they knew what it meant to be building something from ground up. So let's talk about what your customers are dealing with and then what you are helping them deal with. And of course, your customers are oftentimes fast-growing companies and they're trying to, we, we've talked before and you've mentioned there, they're trying to maximize growth while minimizing fraud and where, what, that's where you come in. Uh, but on the other side, you have this fraudsters, these fraud rings that are creative, coordinated, and quick, right? So maybe take us through the product and, and how that, does that balance work? Yeah, absolutely. So fraudsters are incredibly creative, as we talked about, and they're also really well-coordinated. We see a lot of fraud rings where people are working together. I'll give an example of this fraud, which, you know, it sounds crazy that this is even existent today, but there's a lot of check fraud that we're seeing right now. And you might think that checks, like, isn't that a thing of the past? But 40% of B2B payments are made via checks, which is absolutely insane, but, but it's still a thing. And what fraudsters are doing now is that there are these fraud rings where fraudsters are intercepting the checks over mail and they're stealing the mailboxes, getting the checks. And then what they're doing is they're removing the name of the individual and the amount. And then they're selling these checks on WhatsApp groups or Telegram groups. And in like a lot of the check washing and, and this type of method has existed in the past. But to the secondary marketplace, it's something that's very new. And the lack of security and, and the mailbox theft is, is on a rise. And so... That kind of ingenuity of, okay, I'm going to create a business and on, on fraud and, and then sell it to other people on WhatsApp is something that we did not see before. And so what our product is saying is that today, if you have check fraud as an issue or ACH fraud as an issue or credit card fraud as an issue, the way that it's typically been approached is people say, okay, I'm going to buy a check fraud solution or an ACH fraud solution. But Actually, the best way to do that is the fraudster does not even think of it. It's like, I'm going to commit check fraud at 8.25 a.m. I'm going to commit wire fraud at 11.25 a.m. They're just trying to think of how to, what are the weaknesses in your institution and try to defraud you. So our take is don't look at the payment that the, or don't only look at the payment that the individual is making to determine whether there's fraud or not, but look at all of the information that you have before the payment is made. So the onboarding data, what are the actions the individual has taken in the application? What are the behavioral characteristics of this particular individual? And combine that together to make a holistic user profile to conduct more in-depth user analytics. So really the goal is go look beyond the particular transaction to identify the fraud because that's when the fraud starts. Reminds me a little bit of the movie, Catch Me If You Can. Have you, have you seen that movie? The main character is a Frank Abagnale Jr. You have that scale online, highly organized. 
And how is the new wave, especially generative AI, how is that going to affect this world? Because I've been hearing two opinions. One is going to make it worse. And the other one is, is going to help us fight fraud in a better way. So where, where do we fall in? And, and, you know, really with respect to the catch me if you can metaphor, I think it's so easy to commit fraud today because you don't even need to do, you know, the makeup work that Leonardo DiCaprio had to do. You, you just can be a fraudster sitting in your room and you're able to parallelize these attacks in a way that just was never possible before and you had to enter a bank branch to open an account and things like that. With respect to the generative AI, it's like a really interesting component is that if you can sit in your bedroom and be able to create these fraud attacks, with generative AI, it's only going to get much easier for the fraudster to be able to do that. And the big, big component of where people should be worried is around social engineering scams and account takeovers. So I'll give an example. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have received the classic Nigerian prince email. And and you would know that it's spam because you would see a bunch of spelling mistakes and you would see that this doesn't even read like a proper email. But today you can ask ChatGPT to write you an email that is asking for help and it'll actually be a really well-written email without any punctuation errors, without any grammatical errors. And so it'll be much easier to commit social engineering scams, which look like legitimate emails. An example of where we saw one was in targeting the account payables teams in companies. So people would create fake invoices, which read like completely normal, good invoices, asking for payments to be made or for details or, or to get on a call and to commit a more elaborate social engineering scan. And uh, it would be sent to the accounts payable team. And the accounts payable team is running in the finance department, maybe completely not, you know, really know, okay, what is a software or what is this vendor? And then they might make a payment out. And, and you might think that, okay, th- this doesn't even seem like, you know, how many people are going to do that? But there was a case, I believe, in 2017, 2018, where Google and Facebook both lost $100 million to this kind of scam. And then they were able to recuperate half of it back. But it's a pretty big sum of money for extremely sophisticated institutions. So there's definitely a lot more happening that isn't always reported. And that's only going to increase the, the types of scams that we're seeing with improved methods on, on the social engineering side have already, it's already come into play in, in six months. So uh, fraudsters are having this incredible job, definitely. And Trisha, I, I wonder, other than providing your product, what the core product that you offer at Unit 21, do you give your customers also some sort of recommendations of, you know, things what not to do, this, what to do? You know, I, I, I wonder how, you know, if, if there's anything that we that you have off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been providing out-of-the-box recommendations based on what we are seeing in the industry since day one. What we recently launched is something I'm really excited about, which is what we would see is the same fraudster, you know, along with being the most creative people on the planet, fraudsters are also the most impartial people. They don't care who the institution is. As long as they get money, they will try to attack you. And we would see the same fraudster come and show up in amongst five of our customers. And we would say, this is absolutely crazy. There needs to be a way to 
go from a more reactive approach to fraud to a more proactive approach to fraud. And so we created this data sharing consortium that people could, in a privacy-preserved manner, be able to share information about good and bad users so that you can, from across the industry, see how this person acting. So not, not just from a holistic understanding of how they're acting in your platform, but across the industry. And so this is something that we went live with three months ago. We already have over 10% of the adult U.S. population's data in the consortium. And we're really excited about this. Um, so this is something that you know will be a really important focus for us in the coming years. And, and this is the FinTech Fraud DAO? Yeah, this is a FinTech Fraud DAO. The goal is it's really a gift to get models. So as long as you are giving data, you're able to get data about about whether an individual has been seen as a fraudster or not. And I'm curious, why did you pick a DAO as a structure to do this? The reason that we picked a DAO was around the governance components of it. And, you know, consortiums have been a dime a dozen consortiums in the last 30 years that a lot of people have tried to create this approach. But one of the concerns that a lot of people have is, okay, you have a competitor in the consortium and what if they provide like crap data to get to put me down, then what can I do to protect against that? And so they typically don't believe or trust if there's a vendor who's making these decisions because the incentive for Unit 21 would be different from the incentive of a company that's a fintech company that's contributing data. And so what we said is, okay, how do we align the incentive problem better? So the, the component of how you know, with, with respect to the DAO, where this comes to life is the governance is determined by the participants of the consortium instead of strictly by Unit 21. And so if there is a decision made to revoke access or revoke company in the consortium because it is decided by a majority that this, this company is not the right company that is contributing data to the consortium, that as long as it's decided by all of the the members of the consortium, then Unit 21 cannot override that versus if it was just a standard product offering, then it would be something that is fully under the control of Unit 21. And, and we've seen a lot of interest in this concept of, you know, which, which existed in, in the past, like a farmer's collector, but, but really bringing that in this space of fraud prevention. Trisha, so I'm, I'm curious, you have also been successful at raising capital from investors. And and you have, I mean, you, you've raised meaningful capital, but you haven't raised, you know, just the insane amounts that you see from other companies. And, and clearly you have been very focused. Any reflections from raising from funds like Google's Gradient or, or other of your investors? Raising capital, there's a lot written about it. And I think capital is, it's really important to understand the dynamics whenever you are raising around so that you can ensure that it maximizes the value for your company, for, for you, and minimizes shareholder dilution. So the best way to do that is it's almost like dating. You have to get a lot of interest from people and, and, and then you have to kind of ensure that it is in a very time-constrained manner so you can really drive to a decision. That is something that was not particularly obvious to me when I started the company but it's you're really trying to collect interest and then convert that interest into term sheets. And then once you have term sheets, then you can optimize with the price. 
With respect to the capital, one thing that I wish people spoke a lot more about is that the more capital you raise, the more that means that if you exit or, you know, whatever the exit is, you that money first will effectively go to the investors. And it's important that you are mindful on on that so you can retain as much control of where you want to take your business. And it's not something that you work on for years and then ultimately don't see any output from that. And so we've seen that bunch of companies that exit at amazing valuations, multiple billions of dollars, but they raise so much money that the founders or the employees don't really, the people who actually contributed their lives to the company don't get a meaningful return from it. Yeah, keep your capital structure as lean as possible, for sure. And so before I let you go, Trisha, you're doing a lot of things, but you're clearly laser focused on Unit 21. What has you the most excited for the next couple of years? Yeah, what's the most exciting for me is fully thinking about how can we prevent these criminals from taking advantage of us and how can we do that in interesting, creative ways. These criminals are so creative. How can we come up with inventive ideas, which I'm really excited about for the fintech fraud now, in order to make sure that these individuals or businesses cannot take advantage of innocent, normal, regular people. I'm really excited about continuing on our product development work for that alongside of us distributing it effectively. Wonderful. Well, Trisha, thanks for all the work you do. And then thanks for joining FinTech leaders. It's going to be exciting to watch the next five years of Unit 21. Thank you, Miguel. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Trisha, CEO of Unit 21. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armazo.